Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Seasonal Affective Disorder, or SAD as we'll be referring to it sometimes, is a diagnosis for mood dysregulation that sets in with the shorter days of autumn and winter. Roughly three to five percent of the population, it's estimated, could be diagnosed with SAD. And another 15% of the population manifest less severe symptoms, but still there is a sense of mood shifts as the day grows, the days grow shorter. So the common symptoms of seasonal affective disorder, and I'm sure you're aware of these, are sluggishness and fatigue, difficulty getting out of bed in the morning, uh, conflict and irritation with family members, friends, and coworkers, increased sleep and especially increased appetite, craving complex carbohydrates, such as I would assume pasta, baked goods, sweets, etc. And then there's the more damaging inclinations to spend longer periods of time isolated from social interactions. And that's really where the pathology associated with SAD can be uh, most uh, damaging. So why do we have seasonal affective disorder? Well, we do have a, in the brain, a master clock that's known as the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And every time I hear suprachiasmatic, I think it should be followed by expialidocious or whatever. Uh, but anyway, suprachiasmatic nucleus is a region right above where the optical nerves cross. And it's um, a region that regulates sleep and wake cycles, energy, alertness, digestion, blood pressure. And when it, it changes essentially the circadian rhythm that governs uh, especially the sleep-wake cycles, there's a significant diminishment of 5-HT or serotonin, synaptic serotonin. Serotonin is, of course, a mood regulator. And when it's reduced, uh, we become subject to dysregulation, especially mood plummets. Clinical psychologist Daniel Eisenberg at the University of Michigan, as I recall, uh, noted that there's a 5% shift in or fluctuation in dopamine as well, which results in what we call like the winter sluggishness, the deactivation of our exploration impulses, and the cause of our inclinations to hibernate. So again, there's 
clear diminishment of, of the two neurotransmitters most associated with emotion regulation and positive reward, which is serotonin and dopamine. Now, some theories also posit that the amount of light determines how much melatonin is released from the pineal gland. And melatonin also has antidepressant effects. So less light, less melatonin, less antidepressant. Now, in statistically small cases, seasonal affective disorder can manifest in subclinical decompensation, which could require treatment. Perhaps the most common treatment would be light, full-spectrum light therapy, which uh, you can uh, purchase inexpensive full-spectrum light that emits uh, the blue light that's, uh, that's very often missing during the winter. And if people use it for about a half an hour a day, you don't stare into the blue light, you just have it to the side, then it's associated with some regulation of the melatonin release. Another common treatment for seasonal affective disorder is, of course, bupropion, uh, otherwise known commonly as Wellbutrin. That upregulates synaptic dopamine, especially D2, and uh, that's FDA approved for seasonal affective disorder. So it's very common that uh, people who report with uh, noticeable pathologies associated with SAD would be given that. Uh, uh, prescription. If you don't want to go the pharmaceutical route, um, no worries. The amino acid tyrosine is an essential precursor of the synthesis of dopamine. And uh, it's just, uh, in conjunction with enzymes, it's what we build dopamine from. So you can just get tyrosine from any reputable pharmacy, and uh, it's essentially just an amino acid synthesized from common foods. And so tyrosine would be uh, an alternative to a pharmaceutical approach to addressing lack of do synaptic dopamine. Taking melatonin, three milligrams well-sourced in late afternoon helps adjust the circadian rhythms. So um, for home approach to addressing SAD w might be to consider uh, sourcing both tyrosine and melatonin, which would be the, the tyrosine would be taken early and the melatonin in the late afternoon. Um, in most cases, calling it SAD really does a disservice to a, an actually very natural internal rhythm that is transcultural and transhistorical to expect us to have steady productivity, the same level of energy and disposition throughout the year is not found in any other species. And it's not found really truly in any tribal cultures. So in fact, the attempt to override the natural cycles, which lead to hibernation and down regulation of mood, which is in, in fact a quite natural 
outcome of living in northern temperate climates, uh, if we try to uh, override these natural cycle, cycles, there's actually uh, some serious uh, health of effects, uh, increased risk of heart attack, stroke, obesity, psychological dysfunction, and even neurodegenerative diseases. There's a, a clinical paper I sort of scanned, uh, what was it called? Uh, circadian rhythm disruption in psychiatric and neurodegenerative disease. So in other words, the attempt to sort of live in this abstract calendar that we live in, where we have five-day work weeks throughout the year, and we push ourselves to have the same level of productivity, the same level of creativity, the same level of attention. None of this is actually a natural propensity. In fact, we're supposed to have uh, times of the year where we switch into parasympathetic states, which allow us to heal uh, and especially build uh, memory resources. It helps repair the body. It helps with digestion. It helps uh, build up our sleep bank and so forth. So the attempt to, to overly treat sad. It can be a problem in and of itself, or, and especially the, pro, the attempt to not pay attention to it, to push through life as if there's not these natural rhythms that are, in essence, supposed to govern our, how we move through the year can actually be quite damaging. Successful cultures, especially uh, northern regions of Norway, um, have embraced the ebbing of energy and the loss of productivity. And it's actually celebrated that there's a, a cycle to the year. And there's no attempt to actually act as if we should have the same level of gusto and uh, alertness and engagement. Uh, a, a, a study by Carrie Leibowitz of Stanford showed how Tromso, success, which is a, probably, I think, uh, one of the most northern cities in the world, uh, embraced the natural cycles of the uh, season and it languaged these shifts positively, and it emphasizes emphasized social engagement, so that while the body would go into this parasympathetic downshift, where we become we move slower, we think slower, we are less active, it still protects people from falling into the depression associated with seasonal affective disorder. So this brings me to the big point, which is that um, seasonal affective disorder only really becomes a problem when hibernation entails prolonged emotional isolation. 
And that's a real concern during the pandemic. Um, in human tribal arrangements during our ancestral evolution, while we would be far less active during the winter months and no doubt be subject to what we call winter doldrums and every culture has its own, every Northern temperate climate culture has its own words for winter doldrums. I think in German it's Winterflaute or something like that. Um, so uh, in our evolutionary history, we would travel in small nomadic clans of maybe seven or eight adults and some children. And the adults during the cold, dark months would huddle together. So there wasn't emotional isolation. And in huddling together, the social interaction would prevent serotonin levels from dropping too precipitously along with what we already know is the drop of dopamine. But in our capitalist culture where we live increasingly isolated lives where very few of us live in communities or in groups, during the uh, winter months, especially for the, during times of social isolation and social distancing, um, there can actually be really damaging pathological ramifications because uh, if we are not interacting with others, then they, uh, what gives us a baseline level of, of serotonin to protect us from mood plummets can drop away and we can actually be subject to two really damaging outcomes, which I'll talk about, two different kinds of damaging outcomes. So um, d if we wind up during a pandemic with a lack of proximal contact and destabilized by that, uh, what will happen is the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, which is essentially the brain's tribal monitor, which notes when there's any effect to our tribal bonds, our tribal status, will start to, again, lower serotonin. And this uh, removes that protective neurotransmitter that helps buoy our mood. And then on top of it, given 2020's stressful upheavals associated with uh, economic and health and all the political upheavals, there's been in many people also a constant secretion of cortisol, the stress hormone, which then has negative effects on GABA. And GABA is the brain's anti-anxiety uh, neurotransmitter. So a whole bunch of <laughs> I mean, to put it, to put it uh, simply, a whole bunch of challenging things can happen all at once. Again, the triggering of the DACC due to social isolation or not connecting with enough people on an emotionally disclosing level can actually lower our serotonin levels to precipitous amounts, and that can set us up for... Um, 
uh, a significant mood fluctuations. Now, those with a history of unipolar depression um, are most going to be susceptible to uncertainty in, in employment, financial instability, and this can lead to what would be subclinical outcomes, which of anhedonia. Anhedonia is the lack of joy and lack of reward, lack of pleasure in life, a lack of feeling uh, motivated to get out of bed. And this, in turn, people with a history of unipolar depression can wind up with a, a loss of any impulses to exercise, Overeating becomes quite common, and then people self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. And the attendant results can be an atrophying of one's engagement with the world, a sense of purposelessness, extreme downturn in one's self-esteem, and so forth. So if any of this sounds familiar, I would highly recommend speaking with a nurse practitioner, a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and looking into either um, a way to upregulate dopamine because we don't really want to play around with that kind of uh, the factors that can set us up for real severe depressive disorder. Now, the other kind of negative outcome associated with uh, the pandemic and seasonal affective disorder is that anxious individuals people who have histories of anxiety disorders or anxious attachment or borderline or people who have uh, even obsessive compulsive disorders uh, have significant rejection sensitivity. Rejection sensitivity is essentially uh, an inability to tolerate well interpersonal rejection. And these individuals uh, especially the more they are isolated, the more constantly vigilant for signs of nonverbal or, ver or verbal signs that other people don't like us. So the longer an anxious person remains socially disconnected, the more their basal lateral amygdala, which is the, the part of the the limbic system that learns what to be frightened of. Yes, there's actually a region of the brain that learns what we should be frightened of. The more we wind up socially distanced, the harder it is to reconnect with others. And the more it will activate the default mode network of the brain and all of the self-oriented negative thought that spirals over and over, Coupled with cortisol, this can lead to the effects of significant anxiety disorders, which is insomnia, loss of appetite, intrusive thoughts, and an inability to uh, feel relaxed, an unsettledness, a sense of jumpiness. And so, again, what we're seeing is that 
in the pandemic in conjunction with seasonal affective disorder, it can affect both people with underlying depressive tendencies and those with underlying anxiety disorders. And both for both can become very destabilized. So in the case of individuals with uh, anxiety disorder who primarily would experience insomnia, loss of appetite, and intrusive, repetitive, negative self-oriented thoughts, one would not try to raise dopamine like we did with the depressives. We would actually try to raise serotonin levels. And that could be done by, again, seeing a clinician for um, uh, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or if we didn't want to go that route, we would talk about 5-HTP, which is a precursor of serotonin. Unfortunately, serotonin takes a while to build up, and uh, generally about three weeks before we see any beneficial effects. So one could also consider taking a natural supplement called theanine, which is a natural anxiolytic that upregulates, helps upregulate GABA, which reduces anxiety. So um, even before the pandemic, finding community for many of us was quite a difficult endeavor. And uh, this parallels the global rise in feelings of hopelessness. And so fortunately, there are uh, resources available that can help um, even during a pandemic. There's apps like Nextdoor, which look, which helps us find interaction with other community members. There are Facebook community pages. I'm a member of the North Brooklyn one. There's outdoor spiritual groups that, that meet. Uh, <clears throat> I've actually wandered past different spiritual groups uh, that are meeting outdoors in parking lots, even though it's rather cold here. And there are still, uh, especially in the more moderate climates, there are outdoor 12-step meetings. There's also, of course, a plethora of remote Zoom-based 12-step meetings and support groups. And any, um, if we can uh, use any of these resources, it's really quite beneficial. There is also in New York, I can't speak of other regions, but even during the cold weather, there are outdoor yoga classes. And there's a, a whole host of resources on a website called the web of loneliness.com, which has just a whole database of resources for combating loneliness during the winter. Um, but moving to uh, practices that we can do together in meditation to address seasonal affective disorder during the pandemic, um, I'd like to read from a clinical study first by uh, two very, very influential psychologists, uh, Mario McEwlinser, Philip Shaver, 
and their perspective on psychopathology. And in uh, their study, they note that um, uh, studies document the benefits to mental health by activating mental representations, that's images in our mind, of supportive attachment figures. In other words, visualizing in our mind people who have been supportive, kind, available, consistent, reliable, uh, proximal, in some way people that we've relied on at different points of our life. Techniques include pictures and names suggesting attachment figure availability. In other words, in their studies, they would either have people literally have a photograph of people who've been supportive, or they'd have them visualize internally these soothing figures. And um, the fact that they use pictures and names mean that sometimes instead of using images, they would simply have people recite the names of individuals who had been kind and supportive. Um, uh, so imagery highlighting the availability of soothing figures and the visualization of, fa of faces of security enhancing individuals. Security priming improves our moods even in threatening contexts and eliminates the detrimental effects of threats. One study they go on to note uh, showed extreme effectivity in security-related words in mitigating the symptoms of depression and anxiety. Another, repeating the names of each participant's security providers mitigated the symptoms of eating disorders. So in Buddhist practice, there is, of course, a version of this called Sangha Nusati. Sangha Nusati is one of the three refuges that have, are said to protect us from the vagaries, the shifts, the unpredictability of life, the lack of reliability in so many of the things that we uh, attach to. So Sangha Nusati is the recollection of friends and people who supported us. In monastic settings, Sangha Nusati is practiced by nuns and monks who will recall the names of women and men all the way back to the Buddha who achieved what's called aranthood or awakening, who became truly realized, uh, enlightened, individuals. Now, for lay practitioners, use the practice with what's called mita, or wise friends, who are associated with emotional support. And what we do is we recite the names or visualize the faces of people who we have positive relational experiences with. And that actually, again, has been shown to be not only protective from uh, symptoms associated with monopolar depression and anxiety, but it also, again, upregulates serotonin. And that's a key factor in helping us weather the cold winter months during a pandemic. So that's what we're going to do in our meditation. We're going to actually practice this, this tool 
what I'd like you invite you to do is find a really comfortable seat while I'm going to get a protective sip of water for my throat. And uh, if you would like to support my work, uh, just consider Venmoing Dharma Punks with an XNYC or going to the website. And there's a PayPal button. That's how continue my Buddhist pastoral work. Find an upright, comfortable, seated position, closing the eyes, and we're just going to do some practices associating with uh, shifting into a relaxed state. And so the first thing I invite you to do is take an in-breath and squeeze the muscles in the face really tight, clenching the jaw, furrowing the brow, pinching the nose, making the mouth a really tight, pinched mouth. And then as we breathe out, <sighs> releasing all of the cranial muscles and nerves, which are affiliated with the vagal nerve, which is so influential on the state of our nervous system. And uh, I've found that if I really relax my eyes, soften the eyes and encourage them to just settle, to not bounce about behind closed eyelids, like the eyes are floating in two warm baths, two warm pools. When my eyes settle, I very often find that it inclines the mind to settle as well. And then for the next really full in-breath, I lift up my shoulders, up towards the ears. I begin rotating them back. And then as I breathe out, I drop the shoulders, which opens up the chest. And then for a moment, I put a hand on my heart center and just feel the warmth of the hand and also use it to activate or stimulate the vagal cluster there, which um, when we engage the vagal break, our heart rate goes down below 75 beats per minute and uh, the blood goes back to the stomach, away from the limbs, the visceral muscles relax. And then there's also, of course, blood pressure goes down and uh, the arteries open. And then for the third full in-breath, breathing in to the belly, imagine the belly bloating out like all the air that we're inhaling is coming into the belly. And then as we release the breath, the belly softens and becomes pliant, a really soft belly is associated with 
parasympathetic states, you probably noticed that when in the past you've been really, if there's times that come to mind where you've been stressed out, rushed, hectic, uh, overstimulated, um, uh, feeling overwhelmed, the first symptom that you might become aware of, not only the racing heartbeat and the hyperventilation, but also the stomach becomes very tight. When the sympathetic nervous system engages, then our, the muscles contract there and it sends blood flow to the limbs because we're essentially informing the body that we're under attack. So what we want to do is relax all those muscles, soften all those muscles. And for many of us, this can take the entire practice itself, just slowly softening the muscles of the abdomen. But when we do, again, it engages the vagal break and so many positive benefits associated with that. And so we want to sit with this soft belly, open chest, long exhalations as long as inhalations. And we want to, if thoughts about anything that's happening anywhere else in the future or the past or somewhere else, when they come up, just say hello, note them, promise them that you just need this time for well-being, but that you'll happily pick up those thoughts in a little while. But right now you're taking care of yourself and being lost in thought is not associated with well-being. In fact, while we're lost in thought, we tend to re-engage the sympathetic nervous system. We tend to become hypervigilant, on guard. Stress hormones often are secreted. So the most gentle, caring thing we can do for ourselves is just carve out time in life where we move into the silence between thoughts and really just pay attention to the mind and body right here and now. Uh, just reconnecting with the lived experience and really landing in our life. What is it that the body wants us to know right now? So every time a thought about the future or past comes up, just put it aside. And if the brain really wants to engage in thought, just let the thought be, how can I really relax right now? How can I make this sit as comfortable and pleasant and rejuvenating as I can? So there is a role for thought, but it's thought about what's happening right here and right now. And 
that's not a particularly stressful form of thinking. So we're going to move into silence for a little while and just practice breathing with long, even inhalations and exhalations, a soft belly, open chest, face that has no tension, and just an awareness that is fully engaged with what it feels like right now to be in a human body.
So at this point, I invite you to move to the second phase of our practice tonight. And what we're going to do is a lay version of the Sangha Nusati practice. merging it a little bit with some of the insights of the clinical study that I mentioned. So we're going to first start by bringing to mind images of supportive figures in our life. And even if you are somebody that struggles to conjure up internal representations of people, then you can move directly to the naming of these people rather than the image. So for those that and visualize, we'll use the images, but for those who struggle uh, conjuring and maintaining a, an image in the mind, then we'll just use the name and both will be effective. So bring to mind someone who we associate with care, interest, responsiveness, availability. Maybe not all of these attributes, but some of these attributes at least. The key words being consistency, availability, reliability, responsiveness, predictability, someone who has all the attributes of someone we could turn to or have turned to in our life and just hold an image of the, them looking at us with care. If it helps putting a hand on our heart center to Connect with the vagal nerve. Very often when we feel true sense of connection and care, there's a feeling of warmth and energy in the area of the heart center, essentially the chest cavity. Just holding an image of a caring figure from our life. If no one comes to mind, that is, feels right now available or reliable, just bring to mind any figure that represents those qualities, the possibility of care, the possibility of compassion, kindness, interest in us. Just 
feeling that activation of pro-tribal, connected, embodied state of membership, belonging. And if you're doing the naming, just repeat the name of someone we associate with care, kindness. Just repeat their name. And just drop the name from our head into the body and just see what is felt. And then moving on, we can also use what the authors of the study referred to as security-enhancing phrases. So find a simple phrase that in the simplest language reminds us of our connection with others. It could be as simple as, I am loved. I am cared for I am seen, I am known, I am not alone. Use your own phrases associated with connection. Just repeat them softly. See what happens in the body. You'll know when you've found the right phrase because you'll feel the sense of the mind will become more settled. The attention will stop bouncing about and you'll feel the muscles in the stomach release and the shoulders release. I still use the phrase, I love you, keep going. Holding an image of myself when I was younger in my mind and just repeating, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going.
So at this time, I'm going to ring the bowl and try to bring with you awareness of the parts of the body associated with rest, rejuvenation, awareness of the belly, the chest, the throat, muscles in the face, and see if you can maintain a state of ease in those areas. It's entirely possible to be both aware of the world around us and those key areas of the body which signal whether we're, what state of the nervous system we're in. 